않아서 If one looked into the chapter that we're reading through right now through a let's say modern a modern lens a lens basically eurocentric a eurocentric lens then one would swiftly identify this as religious, yeah? uh, mystical, that kind of thing. But it is very important, if one is really trying to understand what's being stated, it's very important to hold off from these Western Eurocentric Judeo-Christian Greco-Roman constructs, which work very well for our civilization. That is, if I ask, was Socrates a religious character, a philosopher, or a scientist? And then I just started throwing out some names. Okay, Kant, how about Newton, how about Aristotle, how about, you know, it's just gonna, you're going to click, 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 you know exactly where they fit, you know? And some of the philosophers were religious, and some of the scientists were religious, some of the sci- religious people were scientists, but overall, you know, we have things sorted out. But it's really crucial to recognize that those are Eurocentric, Eurocentric templates that work quite well for making sense of our civilization, our history, 2,500 years or so. But as soon as you step outside of that domain, uh, one must be very careful because those same constructs which are are illuminating in one context, Western civilization, uh, can be utterly misleading and obscuring when you step outside. And so... I mentioned the framework of the, the great Nalanda tradition with these five fields of knowledge, and they're called vidya. And vidya is the same word for rikpa. It means knowing. So, some, so we see it means just simply cognizance. It means pristine awareness. But it also means like a field of knowledge, like biology. Biology would be soki rikpa. Not, not knowing, logia, or logia is, yeah, without going into details, but it would be knowing or knowledge of life. And so that's what this is presented as being, is a, a field of knowledge for which there are very rigorous, we can say very demanding methods, starting with technology. So first of all, purification. But then the technology. And the technology is basically shamatha. He said, first of all this. I mean, how many times have we heard it by now? First of all this. First of all this. This is really important. Don't skip this. Please don't skip this. It's really important. Don't skip it. And then we can get on to Vipassana. Searching for the mind, identifying awareness, dream yoga, daytime dreaming, and, you know, then, wow, the whole, it's like, whoa, you mean really? These things are actual, you can actually do this if you've achieved shamatha? As you'll remember, Yatranamuchi is saying, this step, if you've achieved shamatha vipassana, practical. If you haven't, forget about it. I'm going to happen, right? But that's so common. It's so common in modern science. You know, if you don't have a certain type of technology, then forget about it. If you do, oh, then, then carry on, carry on. So it's a simple point, but I thought I'd share something fun with you. That uh, these are, this whole book, really, but especially, you know, the, the core th- themes on the six bardos, and the, out of the six, the three that we're focusing on, these are presenting themselves as science. If we're going to look, is it religion? No, it's not religion. Religion is a matter of belief, reliance on authority, obedience, simple faith, and then hoping that everything turns out well in the future life. That's what religions kind of are known for. This is for this life. Hypotheses are made, methodologies are presented, extremely rigorous, demanding, but 
So is rocket science. So is brain science demanding. Nobody expects to master that in a month or two. And so this is a challenge. What's being presented here is a challenge to a lot of Western assumptions about the nature of the mind, potentials of the mind, and so forth. But I thought I'd share with you something fun. Just, and I've had two or three friends, because I have a lot of friends all over the place, that when they see something that I think would be cool, they send it to me. And so this, this has is, uh, this is, um, hit the, the media pretty strongly. It's come up in multiple ones, and it's clearly really solid science. It's not flaky science, absolutely mainstream. And, uh, but I must, I must say, the, uh, the opening line is, this is from The Telegraph. The Telegraph, it's a major, a major newspaper in the UK. It's The Guardian, The Telegraph, and so forth, right? Yeah, it's not a flaky New Age kind of thing. Okay, so Elizabeth is the witness. She's an ex expert on media in the UK. It's one of the majors, like New York Times, Washington Post, right up there. Okay. So this was published in that, in that newspaper. And here's how the, the, uh, the article starts. First hint of life after death in apostrophes, inverted commas. First hint of life after death. Newsflash. There may be life after death. Now, how would we ever, who would have ever thought of that? I'm sorry, I'm being a bit sarcastic. Okay, but I thought that was really cute. Like, um, everybody was born yesterday, right? First hint of life after death in biggest ever scientific study. Southampton University scientists have found evidence that awareness can continue for at least several minutes after clinical death. <laughs> this is not meant to be you know, a joke or, or, or funny. It's, this is actually straight journalism. Okay. There, there's the first, first evidence that awareness can continue for at least several minutes after clinical death, which was previously thought impossible, assuming that you live under a rock. <laughs> and you never talk with anybody who doesn't believe in scientific materialism. And it really, really, we should lighten up about this. This is kind of funny. For people who are such a, t a minute minority to think that, you know, that they're the only view. And that the you know, 2,500 years of Buddhism came up with nothing. Socrates knew nothing. Plato knew nothing. The Taoists knew nothing. Hindus knew nothing. Sufis knew nothing. Kabbalah knew nothing. The Christian Kinebler knew nothing. That there's only one method. It sounds like evangelical Christianity or any kind of evangelical fundamentalist religion. Like, we have the only way. I mean, we are agreed on that. We have the only way, right? Right? Well, the people who have the only way have made a wonderful discovery. That there's some evidence that for a couple of minutes, consciousness continues after brain death. But let's read. Some and so, some cardiac arrest patients recalled seeing a bright light, a golden flash, or the sun shining, and there's a photo to illustrate that. But now we go to the main, to the main article. <laughs> like special effect. So here it is. Death is a depressingly inevitable consequence of life. But now scientists believe they may have found some light at the end of the tunnel. The largest ever medical study into near-death and out-of-body experiences has discovered that some awareness may continue even after the brain has shut down completely. It is a controversial subject which has, until recently, been treated with widespread skepticism. 
if you live in that little tiny pool of people who believe that. But scientists at the University of Southampton have spent four years examining more than 2,000 people who suffered cardiac arrest at 15 hospitals in the UK, the US, and Austria. So this is a very serious scientific study, and it's published in a, in a very reputable, peer-reviewed scientific journal. So maybe you can you know, dispense with my sarcasm from down. Because uh, this is interesting science. Okay? And they found that nearly, so this is 2,000 people, had heart attacks. right? And they found that nearly 40% of the people who survived described some kind of awareness, again in inverted commas, during the time when they were clinically dead before their hearts were restarted. In other words, this is not a near-death experience. They're dead. And then they're brought back. Now, this is one of the wonders of modern medicine. It's a fantastic thing. Because normally when you're dead, that's, you know, it's a one-way trip. But with the wonders, fantastic technology, great knowledge, great insights of modern medicine, they're able to do this. So now here's, it gets, it gets better. One man even recalled leaving his body entirely and watching his resuscitation from the corner of the room. Despite being unconscious, and that's a very interesting statement, because it just said he was conscious. Mm. Despite being, but this is what it says, despite being unconscious and dead for three minutes, the 57-year-old social worker from Southampton recounted the actions of the nursing staff in detail and described the sound of the machines. It's a very interesting sentence, isn't it? He's unconscious but he's describing what he's seeing. Like, mm, did you hear what you just read? That, that makes no sense at all? But there it is, kind of it's the, the carryover. He should be unconscious, right? Because the mind is what the brain does. That everybody knows, until you don't. So, we, now here's a quotation, we know the brain can't function when the heart has stopped beating, said Dr. Sam Parnia, a former research fellow at Southampton University and now at the State University of New York, who led the study. Now he's written, people listening by podcast, anybody here, when the retreat's over, he's written a very good book, Sam Parnia. Parnia uh, Sam Parnia, he co-authored a book, just collating a lot of data. He's a straight scientist, he's got no religious axe to grind, Hindu, Buddhist, or anything else. He's just a very curious man and looking at this phenomenon. He's written a whole book on this, but now this is the most recent study and the largest study. Pretty formidable. So the brain can't function when the heart has stopped beating. But he continues, but in this case, conscious awareness appears to have continued for up to three minutes into the period when the heart wasn't beating, even though the brain typically shuts down within 20 to 30 seconds after the heart has stopped. That's a very significant difference. 20 to 30 seconds, Three minutes. That's just a medical fact, right? There's no metaphysics here whatsoever. But now what gets all the more interesting, here is Sam Parnia, this cardiologist. The man described everything that had happened in the room, but importantly, he heard two bleeps from a machine that makes a noise at three-minute intervals so we could know how long the experience lasted for. So that's pretty hardcore evidence. He continues, he seemed very credible 
and everything he said had happened to him had actually happened. Now that's, that's a nail on the coffin right there. People having, like Evan Alexander and Proof of Heaven and so forth, they're having these wonderful images and so forth. I think it's quite very interesting. I think with no sarcasm, whatever. But so you're having a hallucination, you know. And that's interesting. You can, have a, you can have a hallucination when your frontal cortex is really shut down. But this one, this is where the, really the axe hits the tree. You're having antibody experience. Your brain has stopped functioning, and you're making accurate observations of what's taking place in the operation room. I have to be a bit corny. I, I just heard some, de uh, some death bells ringing. It's, it's signifying a death. I think it's a signifying that on the, there's scientific materialism is on its deathbed, gasping its last gasp. Because if this is true, scientific materialism is just fundamentally false. Because there's absolutely no way that fits in. The, dom the dominoes start falling. The dominoes start falling. So I know some of the world experts in that. He, this, let's finish this article. But that's right there, that's the most important one, right? The brain is dead for three minutes, no brain activity, and he's seeing veridically, accurately, what's taking place. And everything he said was true. I find, you know, I've corresponded with some of the world experts on this. And they say, how do you, how do you explain it? Because they're seeing in colors. When I look over at Hosa, I'm seeing her yellow trousers. But we know how that works, right? Her yellow trousers are emitting photons of a certain frequency, and they're striking my retina. And that catalyzes a complex sequence of electrochemical events culminating in my visual cortex. And that produces a mental image of yellow. Got it. Except the problem is, your brain has shut down, your eyes are closed, and, you, and if Rosa is in the operating room, you're seeing her yellow trousers. Okay, let's have a, an explanation, please, because that's a fact. And scientists look at facts and try to make them intelligible. I've spoken with one of the world experts, Bruce Grayson. He's really outstanding. I've heard him speak. Tony Karam and I uh, invited him to a conference together. Oh, he, he was the best speaker. I was one of the speakers. He was the best speaker, much better than my presentation. I'm not, and that's not humility. He just was. Really smart, really grounded, and just almost steely, just steely. Like there was nothing mushy, nothing like... In our tradition, we believe this. You know, it was just like <coughs> one hard ball fact after another. He's one of the world experts on these near-death and post-death experiences. And I, I wrote to him. I've known him for some years now. I said, how do you explain this? Because this is not the first account. This is not the first one. This is just the one in the biggest scientific study ever done thus far. 2,000 people, 40% of them. My goodness, that's a lot. You know? And I said, how do you explain that? that they're seeing colors and they're hearing sounds. We know how sounds work, right? Shall they do the thing all over again? It's wavelength. It's ripples in the atmosphere. They strike the eardrum. That catalyzes the auditory cortex. And independent upon the auditory cortex, it creates the image of a sound. Except that didn't happen. They're still hearing sounds. And the brain has shut down. There's nothing happening in the auditory cortex. It's a puddle. There's no activity there. It hasn't happily degenerated, so it can't be a brain again. But for the time being, it's a brain, you know, that's been turned off. So how do you hear sounds? How do you see colors? 
when there's no part of your brain activated. Sound waves are not, so what's going on here? Sound waves are not hitting. If this is some kind of a substrate consciousness coming out, a little snippet into the bardo, how do sound waves hit your bardo non-ears? How do photons strike your non-eyes? Because there's no materiality to the, this energetic form of your bardo being. You know. How does that happen? So we've really struck. I mean, we can stop reading right there. We say, okay, all of science, everybody, everybody, please stop. Everybody, please pay attention. Not that what you're doing is a waste of time, but you know we have to radically reassess something here because we got something really, really, really wrong. The mind is not simply a function of the brain. And now this is definitive proof. If it happens once, it doesn't have to happen twice. If it happens once, that's really enough. It's happened once, but actually it's happened many other times. It hasn't, just, hasn't hit the headlines as much. Let alone, you know, I could swear the Buddha had something to say about this. And I think it might actually be in this text. I know it's in one, maybe it's the Vajra Essence which is such an enormous compendium. But it's stated there, in one of these texts, by Spadmas Mabha, that when you're in the bardo, we may have even actually covered it, uh, when you're in the bardo, your perceptions, you're seeing intersubjective reality. If you're in a room where Patricia is, then you'll see her white, her white uh, skirt, and so forth, right? And other people will see her white skirt, people, people, people who are alive people, but you may, you may also be encountering other bardo beings. And so a couple of bardo beings would say, what do, you, what do you say about the color of Patrice's shirt? Yeah, it's white. Well, to you, yeah, me too. You know, so they're having intersubjective bardo perceptions of Patrice's skirt, as are people who are still alive with Patrice. Right? Here's what it says. In the, this is a classic teaching. There's nothing anomalous about it. But that your perceptions, when you're in this mode, which is no longer brain-dependent, de- brain are seven times more vivid. That's what they say. Seven times more vivid than what you get by way of independence upon your physical, physical eyes, physical ears, and so forth, seven times. Well, there's in two of my books, Genuine Happiness and Meditations of a Buddhist Skeptic, I cite a very well-documented case of a woman who had a brain aneurysm. They, called, they gave her a pseudonym of Pam Reynolds, which is a pseudonym. They wanted to keep her identity private. But she had an, an aneurysm deep inside the brain. And they knew if they did any conventional surgery, they would do so much damage to repair this aneurysm they do so much damage getting in that if she survives, she'd be brain dead. And so what do you do? Well, there was a, a procedure uh, in the terminology of it was hypothermia. Uh, a hypo, so a hypothermia procedure, and you can figure it out. They, they, they hit her with massive, uh, uh, knocked her out, uh, and, and anesthetic, massive. And so she's out stone cold. And then they cooled her down to about... 13, 14 degrees Celsius, or 60, 65 degrees Fahrenheit, something like that. And then, this was a, uh, about a five-hour procedure. During the five-hour procedure, they cooled her down, and then they stopped her heart, and then they drained the blood from her, bra- they drained the blood from her brain. And so the brain was inoperative for quite a long time. They had to get the, the blood out of the brain because if they went in with a knife with all those blood vessels inside the brain, they would cut, so, do so much damage that then it would be ir- irreparable. So they had to, like yesterday's spaghetti, they had to have the blood vessels inside the brain be all limp, you know, like no blood. And then you can just push them aside if they're all full, like fresh spaghetti, you know. 
then you would puncture them. They'd be spurting all over the place, like these little hoses, blood all over the place. And then, you know, so much damage, it's useless. So they had to get her brain, the, the, the veins in her brain, to be flaccid, empty. And then they went in deep into the brain. Again, there was something that was an incredible number of medical personnel, something like 20 involved. It was an incredibly elaborate, and it took five, seven hours, something like that. Anyway, they went deep inside the brain and then fixed the aneurysm, came back out, warmed her, other, warmed her up again, and then zapped her heart, got it going again, and yes, she survived. Of course, otherwise, why would you tell the story? <laughs> It'd be such a boring story. If you and then she died. It was really tragic. <laughs> but I saw her. She was interviewed by National Geographic magazine, which is not, again, a flaky New Age kind of magazine. And I watched the video. And this was now years after the operation, maybe seven, eight years, a long time. And she said, and what she, she was a, a uh, musician, singer. She was pitch perfect. She could just hear a sound and she could know exactly what, what note it was. And while she was having this surgery, her eyes were taped shut, all of this for medical reasons. Her eyes were taped shut. They ha she had plugs in her ears uh, that were emitting a certain sound. And that, again, again, there's a medical reason for that. There were plugs in her ears and her eyes were taped shut. And then while everything was shut down, she had this out-of-body experience where she witnessed the people in the operating room, she watched the type of drill bit and the, you know, the drill that was being used to drill into her head through the skull. And then when they turned on the, dr the drill, she recognized the pitch. And she recognized it when her brain is shut down, of course. And then the surgery was successful. She came out and then she reported and everything she said was true. And I've quoted the, the presiding, the, 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 uh, the surgeon who invented this particular technique. I mean, it's a very, very high-level technique. And he listened to her account, when, obviously, when she was you know, recovered. And he, and he simply said, it was, it was almost hilarious. He said, she had knowledge of things she had no business knowing about. It was quite curious. And he just moved right on. You know. That's curious, you know? And just move right on. It's amazing. Well, now it's come out a bit more with a louder voice. So seven times, seven times stronger. But in the interview, which I watched, she said, this is again seven, eight years, something like maybe 12 years. It was a long time after the operation. She said that the experiences she had of seeing and hearing in this out-of-body experience, because she was above, and watching them do this drill into her head. She said they were the most vivid experiences she'd ever had in her life. And she said, now years and years later, they, the memories of that experience remain as vivid now as they did the day after. So, the evidence, and again, if that's true, then sign-up materialism is finished. You have to just rewrite the book from the beginning. The mind is not what the brain does. Uh, it's more complicated than that. You might want to consider maybe there are multiple dimensions of the mind. And in fact, that you can act, and this is the weird part, you can actually see colors, hear sounds, and so forth with no biological basis. Right? Now, in Buddhism, it's said that all of our five physical senses, if you ask where they're coming from, what's the primary cause? What transforms into, as a, as a, as, as a grain of wheat, 
transforms into a wheat stalk, right? Transforms into it. What transforms into visual perception? Does it come out of nothing? Or, or, yeah, because obviously when you're deep asleep, let's say dreamless sleep, you don't have any visual perception. Nada, right? But then somebody wakes you up, or you just wake up naturally, open your eyes, and there's visual perception happening. But it wasn't there one minute earlier. So where did it come from? And the Buddhists have an answer for that, of course. That all of the, the five sensory modes of consciousness all emerge from mental consciousness. They're derivative of mental consciousness. And then if we ask mental consciousness, among the five skandhas, there it is, one among the six, six, of the, the six, mental, uh, six modes of consciousness, say, what is the faculty independence upon which mental consciousness arises? And they simply call it the mental faculty. Yikiwambo. Manendriya. Manendriya, it's called in Sanskrit. Yikiwambo. So what's that mental faculty? Well, the first thing they say is, this one isn't physical. The faculty's independence upon which visual, auditory, olfactory, gustatory, and, and tactile arise, they're physical. Subtle, but they're physical. Right? But the faculty independence upon which mental consciousness arises is not physical. In other words, there is no minimal amount of brain activity needed for the emergence of mental consciousness. Because the faculty independence upon which it arises is not physical, therefore it's not part of the brain. Because the brain is 100% physical. Right? So, I think the, the Buddhists beat him to the punch, frankly. Uh, so what is that mental faculty? So, for example, when you're coming out of deep sleep. Or, for example, the first moment of mental consciousness in an embryo, a human embryo, for example. There has to be a first moment. Sometime. I don't know when it is union of egg and sperm, or one week later, I don't know, I have no idea. But there has to be a first moment of mental consciousness, of this living organism that has a nervous system and you know, is evol evolving through the gestation period. So whence arises that first moment of mental consciousness? Any guesses? Isabel? No, yeah, but what's the, what's the, what would you imagine as the primary cause? From what arises that first moment of mental consciousness? What would you imagine? Yeah, substrate consciousness. Yeah, that's it. I don't see any other option. It's a substrate consciousness. But then, lo and behold, that's exactly what happens when you're in dreamless sleep, and then you suddenly wake up. Where does the visual consciousness come from? Substrate. What about your mental consciousness? You're awake now, and now, oh, you're aware. There's Isabel, there's Emerson, and so forth. Mental consciousness. Where did it come from? Substrate. So, all experiences are preceding, preceded by the mind, issue forth from the mind, and consist of the mind. Well, I think it's pretty reasonable. The reference to the word mind there, substrate consciousness. You know? So, this is kind of getting exciting historically because the dominoes are not going to stop falling. The more this gets, and they're not going to stop doing the research, the dominoes won't stop falling. It's going to keep on going and going and going all the way down. Let's read a little bit more. I'll finish the article and then we'll move on. So there it was. The man described everything that happened in the room, but importantly, here two, two bleeps from a machine that made a noise at three-minute intervals so we could time how long the experience lasted for. He seemed very credible, and everything that he said had happened to him had actually happened. What, what they're meaning by that, of course, is everything he said happened to him 
was intersubjectively validated. That's what he's really saying. Nothing more, nothing less than that. Other people witnessed the same thing in the operating room, and they all agreed among themselves, and he agreed with them. That, that's what it means. It really happened. Intersubjective consensus. Of 2,060 cardiac arrest patients studied, 330 survived, and 140 said they had experienced some kind of awareness while being resuscitated. Oh, that's close to a half. Although they could not recall specific details, some themes emerged. One in five said that they felt an unusual sense of peacefulness, while nearly one-third said time had slowed down or speeded up. Some recalled seeing a bright light, a golden flash, or the sun shining. Others recounted feelings of fear or drowning or being dragged through deep water. 13% said they had felt separated from their bodies, and the same number said their, their senses had been heightened when the brain is shut down. Dr. Parnia believes many more people may have experiences when they are close to death, but drugs or sedatives used in the process of resuscitation may stop them remembering. Estimates have suggested that millions of people have had vivid experiences in relation to death, but the scientific evidence has been ambiguous at best. Many people have assumed that these were hallucinations or illusions, but they do seem to correspond to actual events. Actual events, again, simply means intersubjective events, which means then it's very, very significant. It's not a hallucination, unless you're all having the same hallucination with the same drug, which doesn't happen. Even, you know, take three people and have them all drop LSD. They don't have the same hallucination. That tends to be like your own dream. You don't generally share a dream. That's your own hallucination. So, and a higher proportion of people may have vivid death experience, but do not recall them due to the effects of brain injury or sedative, sedative drugs or on memory circuits. These experiences warrant further investigation. Dr. David Wilde, a research psychologist at Nottingham Trent University at, is currently compiling data on out-of-body experiences in an attempt to discover a pattern which links each episode. He hopes the latest research will encourage new studies into the controversial subtopic. Most studies look retrospectively, 10 or 20 years ago, but the researchers went out looking for examples and used a really large sample size, so this gives the work a lot of validity. There's some very good evidence here that these experiences are actually happening after people have medically died. We just don't know what is going on. We are still very much in the dark about what happens when you die, and hopefully this study will help shine a scientific lens onto that. What I find astonishing, though, you'd really think these people lived on another planet where there was no Buddhism, no Hinduism, no Taoism, no... Nobody knows anything. They, they live on a planet where nobody knows anything unless they got it from science. And everybody, not science, they have as much knowledge as a toadstool or a carrot. I do find that extraordinary because there are hundreds and there are thousands of books now on Buddhism, Hinduism, Taoism, all of these traditions. Early Christianity, the Kabbalah, Taoism, schools of Sufism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Pythagoras, Socrates, Plato. They're saying this is the first sign. And I've just given you a description of most of human civilization for the last 5,000 years. 
So what the sign is, is extraordinary myopia. And almost unbelievable pomposity. To think that if you don't know it scientifically, you just don't know it. So that may be breaking pretty soon, because they're saying, this, well, this, we just don't know what's going on. You don't know what's going on. You don't know what's going on. Wake up and smell the roses. Gosh darn it. This is where I get exasperated. You'd think that we're living in the 19th century, you know, and you have to get in a wooden boat to get to India. There is such a thing as Skype. And it's free. You can talk to people in India. It's amazing. The study was published in the journal Resuscitation. Dr. Jerry Nolan, editor-in-chief at Resuscitation, said, Dr. Parnia and his colleagues are to be congratulated on the completion of a fascinating study that will open the door to more extensive research into what happens when we die. So that's interesting. So, I want to share a little bit of news, more personal news. I've been working with a couple of friends quite intensively over the last couple of days uh, with a very distinct vision about the possibility of creating a contemplative observatory in Europe. Europe. Uh, a marvelous piece of land has been identified. I mean, it's actually superb. And so I worked with a couple of friends, and we've written a letter, sent it off this morning. Today is a full moon day and total lunar eclipse day, so quite auspicious, if you like that kind of thing, um, to a, a llama that's virtually a wonder worker, how much good he's brought to the world. He's just a dynamo. Give him something to do, he does it in space. He's an incredible llama. And so, and this llama actually has some connection the land in question. And so a couple of friends of mine worked together with me, wrote a letter, uh, and I presented to the Lama a vision, a very actually detailed vision, that came out of two long conversations I had with His Holiness Dalai Lama, of creating a contemplative research center together with an observatory, inviting in scientists, and totally ecumenical. In other words, not Galupa, not Tibetan Buddhist, not just Buddhist, but His Holiness was adamant, I mean, really very, very emphatic. If such a center is created, and he was entirely for it, he pledged a significant amount of money from his own Dalai Lama fund to create such a contemplative research facility that would be really highlighting Shamatha and Vipassana. That's him. Uh, and among all Buddhist schools. But then he hastened to add, hey, hey, the Buddhists don't have a monopoly on Shamatha and Vipassana. That they crop up in, their, in different modalities, different methods, in other in Indian traditions. And then, then it's time for comparative scholars to get out. Do Taoists have Shamadeva Pashna? Do early Christians? Do Sufis? Do, and so forth and so on. In other words, absolutely not dogmatic or, how do you say, sectarian uh, in its approach. And then also bring in scientists and then raise these issues. But bring in something that hasn't happened yet in science. Because I think I kind of know pretty much all the scientific studies done of meditation thus far. Uh, I'm not every single one, but I, you know, I've been in the field for 20 years now. And uh, I would say not one of them really, or virtually none, I'll, I'll be safe, virtually none treats the meditator as a full-scale collaborator and asking the meditator, what did you discover? Not just what did you do, or whether you blink when there's a sound of a shotgun or something, but you know, what did you discover? Or if you're working with a group of meditators, what did, did, you find, did you find any consensual discoveries as you were meditating for eight weeks or for three months or what have you? 
Did you make any discoveries? Did you corroborate it? Yes, I made that discovery too. Oh, yes, I did too, I did too. In other words, like mathematicians, like scientists, did you make discoveries on your own, but then find there was a third-person perspective by finding it's intersubjective? You know? I don't know one study that treats the meditators as if they might have some special mode of knowing. I don't know of one, and I've been involved in several. You know? um, and so the rationale behind such a center is to have an even playing field. Just even. Not tilted towards Buddhism, not trying to... Tr I, I'm not so pathetic. That, let's create a center to try to prove Buddhism because I'm feeling really nervous. I'm not. It's not that at all. That would be pseudoscience from the beginning. Right? <coughs> but creating a contemplative research facility where we'll start with our strength. We'll start with Buddhism because you know, that's where our strength is. But then as soon as we get something going, then number one, of course, invite scientists in. People like these type of scientists who are wide open. Wide open. And then... Invite in other contemplatives and have short retreats, long retreats, but then have your real research facility over there and 10, 15, 20 research facilities called meditation huts. And let them hunker down for months or years and do the, do the hard work. But then when the scientists collaborate with them, we're not going to let them just study their brains as if they're hamsters. You know, we'll treat them with respect. Human beings are not hamsters. You don't just ask them to pee into a jar give blood samples, study their brain, run in loops like they're rats in a maze. It's okay, it's not insulting, but you're not treating with any respect. You're just treating them as a subject. Whereas when people have been trained for years, rigorously, then treat them with some respect, for heaven's sakes. You know, that maybe they actually know something you don't know. Because they're actually looking at the mind and you're not. You're looking around it. You're looking at brain, behavior, interviewing people, taking their blood, Etc. Etc. All very well, but you know, if you want to understand the mind, why don't you look at it? And so, it's a revolutionary vision. It's wide open. It's even. It's without prejudice at all. And His Holiness, I wrote this in direct. I mean, directly on the basis of two long conversations with him, and tried for actually two years to create something like that in India. Got nowhere. Got nowhere at all. So I said, okay, not working there. So turning my eyes more to North America and to Europe, found a wonderful property, and uh, I think it could make history. I think it really could make history. This is all good, but what about having experts who can access that dimension of consciousness, not just for three minutes, and then come back and say, I saw stuff that really happened, but how about people can access that, linger there, and then start telling you about their past life's experiences in a controlled experiment, and so forth. Uh, I smell revolution. The scent came from my iPhone. This is a revolution. This is not religion. This is not religion versus science. This is good science versus dogmatism. And I know who's going to win. Historically, good science has always beat out dogmatism. But usually dogmatism has been with the religious people. They, they deserve to get beaten up. If they're holding on to things that, as, the Dalai, as His Holiness has said, if you hold beliefs that are refuted by reason or especially empirical evidence, then you have to give up that belief. And he said, I will, including reincarnation. Show me compelling evidence, re reincarnation is false, I'll give it up. I'm following, we're looking at the facts. You know? so, so, in this long conversation, um, I've had a correspondence with a very interesting man. His name is Ed Kelly. Ed Kelly. And he and a number of very, really outstanding colleagues have written a really, really good book coming out soon. And 
these are just top philosophers, scientists from all over the place. And uh, it's basically, from multiple perspectives, calling for a revolution against materialistic science and replacing it with non-materialistic science. In other words, accept everything that is known within the context of materialistic science, but then recognize where the limitations are and recognize where it's just torpedoed. The article I just read torpedoed the notion that is just almost universally accepted. It's Marvin Minsky. The mind is what the brain does. It's just a function. And people like John Sewell says, everybody, every intelligent, educated person knows this to be true until you don't. So I'm seeing a big Titanic here, and we just saw a tip of an iceberg. You know, this does not bode well for scientific materialism. And I want to sink, see it sink as fast as possible. I want to have you know, all hands go down with it. All the hands of the implications, the reductionism, the dehumanizing, the demoralizing, I want that ship to go down with all hands. No harm to any sentient being. Why would one want one harm any sentient being? That would be stupid. No, just down with all hands. All vestiges of, mind, of scientific materialism, down. Bye-bye. Stay there. So Ed Kelly gave me the blurb. In fact, he sent me the whole manuscript of this book by these outstanding scientists, philosophers from all over the place, and asked me for an endorsement. I gave him two. But then we continued the conversation, and I sent him uh, a little blurb on the vision for this whole network of contemplative observatories. And he has some very good critical suggestions. I just brush it up a little. It needs a bit more muscle, a bit more. But he said, in principle, count me in. Count me in. And in fact, you should call this guy from Berkeley. We should have a meeting. Can you come to Virginia soon? So it's getting exciting you know, in a totally positive way. I know I can be sarcastic, but you know, when I get over it, it's really exciting. And so a contemplative observatory, that doesn't exist contemplative observatory that's primarily there to train people to achieve shamatha. Let's stop messing around. Let's set up the conducive environment that's good not for eight weeks or for three months or for six months, but it's there until you finish the job. You know, and do everything you do so have a qualified meditation teacher there or one or more. Get it all together and why not? Get the EEG scans as you're going through the nine stages of shamatha. What's the EEG signature for each of the nine stages? Wouldn't that be cool? You know, why not? And then what, what happens in the brain when you achieve shamatha? You get this big, kind of heavy pressure, kind of pleasant, but pressure on the top of your head. There has to be something taking place in your frontal cortex there. What? Because it's the first sign that you're about to achieve shamatha. What's taking place? It's got to be in the brain. Nobody knows. But somebody could know. You just have to get somebody there. You know, they're just about to achieve shamatha. Put a cap on them. Find out what's the EG signature of achieving shamatha. That'd be cool. So I think this is the most exciting science on the planet. I think it's actually the most exciting science in the history of science. Because this is going to change everything. There will be no stone unturned from this one, all the way down to physics. There will be no stone. That means you have to reassess evolution. The notion that evolution is just physically driven, just, 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 genetics, natural selection, blah, blah. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What about the animals? Now that we're all agreed that we're animals in evolution biology, you know, we're just you know, one more primate, uh, doesn't that mean that the monkeys too, the, the chimpanzees and the gorillas and so forth, doesn't that mean that they too could have out-of-body experiences? If you had a gorilla that had a heart attack? You know, and maybe the gorilla knows sign. You know, they've taught some gorillas sign. 
So maybe they, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that'd be cool. <laughs> so there it is. But I think we will find, I think time is getting very, very close, really, really close, that we're going to find very, very reputable scientists whose minds are wide open, eager. They're smelling blood. They're smelling Nobel Prizes. They're smelling big career boosts, as well as the sheer thirst for understanding. I want to show respect for scientists. They've given us so much for 400 years. The sheer thirst for understanding. Let us know reality as it is. You know. Kudos to scientists who do this kind of research. So then, there's a watershed here. People will still be clinging as the evidence mounts and mounts and mounts, still clinging. The mind is really the, what the brain does. You know, It really is. I mean, you have, it was a trick. It was a trick. You know. They're going to sound like fundamentalist Christians who are still insisting that the, 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 the Earth is 10,000 years old. The scientific materialists will look more and more like, you've got to be kidding. Really, you've got to be kidding. I see like scientific materialism might be this little sacrificial lamb tied to a stake with a rope, and the Buddhists are coming in, and the Taoists are coming in. The Hindus are coming in, and then the scientists are coming in. Oh, that looks tasty. <laughs> and it's going, bah, bah. All right, I'm finished. <laughs> but I'm really enjoying this. Because <laughs> the revolution really is coming. And I'm getting more and more emails. A manifesto is written by, written by a whole bunch of scientists. A manifesto written, signed by a whole bunch of people saying, enough is enough. It's time to revolt against materialistic science, look at other paradigms, be open to evidence like parapsychology and so forth. There's an awful lot of evidence that they just keep on sweeping under the rug for decades now. They're saying it's enough is enough. So the fellow, one of the drafters, ever sent me a copy. You know, said, yeah, I'm for it. Thumbs up. Hola, so. So now, with all of that, let's just go meditate. Go ahead, Isabel. He had no answer. He had no answer. He had no answer, yeah. And I, and I respect that. See, the difference between having no answer and pretending you have an answer that you don't really know what you're talking about, that's night and day. So I don't have an answer right. Now I can say the Buddhist, what the Buddha says, is that all these sensory modes, visual and so forth, they're all arising from subtle consciousness. They're all arising from substrate consciousness. But they can manifest without the mediation of brain. And therefore, you can see colors. You can see, color, you can see colors in the bardo. You can see colors when you're having pure vision, which is purely mental, and so forth and so on. But it's coming out of subtle consciousness, in which all the five are already there already. And in fact, things are slowed down and dulled seven times by having to be mediated by the physical mechanisms inside the brain. You know? So that would be the Buddhist answer. Uh, but it's time. But, uh, but you know, in corresponding with these scientists and... I really find these scientists, you know, who are doing this cutting-edge research out there. Um, I'm finding they're really quite open, open, and interested. And some of them more conservative. I mean, a one outstanding, world-class neurologist at UCLA. He's a very good friend of mine. He's on the board of the Santa Barbara Institute. And uh, oh, such a good man and so smart, world-class scientist. And uh, he said, Alan, create it. Create the contemplative observatory. Create the mind center. We will come. 
You know, the old cliche, create it, you know, make the field, they will come. You're saying create it. Create it will come. Will come. Where, you know, what you're saying, we haven't seen the truth of it or not, but we're open, and he really is open. He's been trained as a materialist his whole life, but he's not dogmatic. He says, we'll come. So whether it happens first in the United States, happens first in Europe, wherever the karma is ripe, but I think, frankly, it's going to happen in the West first. There's two years of striving, getting nowhere. said, okay, it's kind of business as usual there. There's a lot of inertia, a lot of inertia. Not from His Holiness. His Holiness is a firebrand. But um, not so much inertia here in the West. And plenty of scientists, enough scientists, that are really open, interested, and ready to be part of a revolution. Frankly, I think that's what's going to help save us. Because materialism will doom us. And if something can save us, it has to completely torpedo materialism, opening up whole di different ways of viewing reality, different priorities, different way of life. It has to go hand-in-hand hand with genuine happiness, eudaimonia. It's got to go hand-in-hand hand with that. So that, whether that will save the planet, that may be a bit on the optimistic side. But might it do some great good? That's, all, that's what this is all about. It's not one side winning or another side winning, one doctrine being better than another doctrine. It really boils down to view and alleviating suffering and helping people find happiness. That's what it's really about. It's always been about that. So with that said, let's have a silent session and let's explore the nature of consciousness. What greater adventure could there be? In Atisha's great text, the first Lamrim ever written, called The Lamp for the Path to Enlightenment, or Bodhipada Praditam, he states that it emphasizes the importance of developing extrasensory perception. It's actually quite encouraged in the Mahayana tradition. Uh, and he says if you have extrasensory perception, with the basis, of course, of bodhicitta, of really benevolent motivation and so forth, he said, uh, in terms of accruing merit, remember the five preliminaries? That's about accruing merit. I mean, that's a big part of it, right? Merit. Um, Atisha says that a person who has achieved extrasensory perception, it's called munshe in Tibetan, Extracentral perception can accrue or accumulate more merit in one day than somebody without extracentral perception can accrue in a hundred lifetimes. So I think that would be a good preliminary practice. <laughs> Ups the ante a bit. Right? And then he says if you want to develop uh, extracentral perception, uh, then you have to achieve shamatha. And if you achieve shamatha, then you'll get extracentral perception. That's what he said. It is. It's a hypothesis waiting to be tested. It's, of course, been tested thousands and thousands of times, but not by us. And that's the adventure of it. You know, so they've tested it, but we have to test it. You know, And that's what, can, that's what hermitages all over Tibet, and Sri Lanka, and so forth, that's what they, what they were for. And that's what we can create here. So I encourage people listening by podcast, if you have any enthusiasm for this, then, again, a proposal has been made to an extraordinary lama who can really get things moving, and so if this is your aspiration, then I would invite you on this very auspicious day. Make prayers that such a contemplative observatory can be created, that it will be of benefit, bring things together, unite people. Otherwise, see, they'll see no common ground, religious people, scientific people, and so on. And that great benefit could flow. That would be very good. And then, final point for Atisha. He said, but on the other hand, or not, not the other hand, but however, however, 
if this is all you've achieved, is shamatha and then extrasensory perceptions, then you won't be liberated and therefore cultivate perfection of wisdom. And then, you, then you'll be doing okay. Let's read a little bit of a text. I do need to, end, uh, to leave very punctually tonight at 6 because I have a dinner engagement. So we're on one page, page 179. And now we've finished the section in this chapter on what to do in meditation. And the answer to that is, don't do anything at all. And now, what do you do when you come out of meditation? So this is the self-liberation of everything that appears, this self-liberation, this natural release. Rangdeul, it's the same term, rangdeul, I've said so many times, of everything that appears following meditation. So the text reads, Following such meditation of equipoise, that is, formal meditation session, it is important to be guided. In other words, you don't just stop practicing. It's enormously important, imperative, that you continue the flow of your meditative practice even when you're not formally in session. This, again, highlights that point that I think I made a day or two ago, maybe yesterday, of this the profound interwovenness of your view, the meditation, and your way of life. That they all have to saturate each other. Otherwise, you'll just not get that, that real transformative power. That's what he's talking about here. Your meditation has to flow into your way of life, your whole way of conduct. So after meditating, practice without losing the sense of meditative equipoise. So come out of meditation, but don't. And in particular, and now he gets very specific, whatever thoughts arise, repeatedly let them appear and be released. So the whole image of this spiral where you, I, I'm sure, deja, deja vu, deja vu, deja vu. You've heard this so many times right there. It's just basically, you know, just your introductory settling the mind in its natural state. What does it say? Oh, whatever thoughts appear, just let them appear and let them be released themselves. Right? You've heard that from Shamatha 101, basic introduction. Well, now you're way, way up in the path. But of course, the difference is that when you're practicing settling the mind in its natural state, when you're starting in the practice, you're observing these thoughts, images, and so forth coming up. From what perspective? Your coarse mind. That's the only one you know about. So the mind is, as Dujum Lingba says, or Padmasambhava, the mind is observing the mind. That is, a mode of awareness, a perspective of awareness that's embedded in your mind is observing thoughts coming up. Right? But what are you emulating? What are you trying to approximate in the practice of shamatha? Well, you know, I think, by you're doing your best to approximate viewing the thoughts, images, memories, and so forth from the perspective of what, Danya? Oh, and this is shamatha. shamatha. Substrate. Substrate consciousness. That's right, exactly right. Yeah, just slip of the tongue. That's right, exactly right. Within the context of shamatha, you're seeking to approximate the view, the perspective, of viewing whatever's coming up from the perspective that's not human. It's not Asian, it's not European, and not, it's not human. Substrate consciousness, right? And it's non-conceptual, but it's knowing. It's that knowing the taste of chocolate before you start thinking about it. That's why we keep on going there. To get accustomed to, to settle into this subtle mode of knowing that is there waiting for you when you get to the substrate consciousness. Right? That's what you're seeking to approximate. But now this is not about shamatha. That was two chapters ago. So on the surface of it, it looks like the same practice. There it is. I mean, observe whatever thoughts allow them to rise, allows them to self-release. We've certainly heard that before. But now, Haggai, from what perspective? In this context, what perspective? Rikpa. Absolutely Rikpa. So on the surface, it looks, but no, no, we already did this. Yeah, on the surface. But no, Haggai nailed it. 
you've been resting in rikpa in meditative equipoise, and he says, that's the meditative equipoise, not the substrate consciousness. See, you can't sustain the substrate consciousness when you come out, because then you're flooded with all the five physical senses. But you can sustain resting in rikpa with all the five physical senses, because all the appearances are nothing other than the effulgences or displays, creative expressions of rikpa. So that's why in this meditation it never said, focus on the space of the mind. It never said anything selective. You're wide open, right? Unlike shamatha. The point of shamatha is you dissolve your mind into the substrate consciousness. But here, when you're resting in rikpa, there is no withdrawal. It's no longer retreat. That's why when you have that visualization of light at your heart, you start getting this expanding visionary extrasensory perception, really, of expanding field of your environment, right? So that whole issue of being able to see colors and, and hear sounds and so forth, well, they call that, they have a name for that in classic Buddhism. It's called the deva-eye, where you can see something not just when you're having an out-of-body experience and seeing somebody who's 10 feet away from your ghost presence. You're seeing something 8,000 miles away, and you're seeing colors. Called, called remote viewing in modern terminology. There's, there's good research there. I know one of the best in the world. His name is Russell Targ. Check him out on Amazon for people li- listening on podcast. He's a very good scientist. I know him. He came to my home just a couple of months ago to do an interview for a, for a documentary he's doing. And so, but there it is, remote viewing, but you're seeing colors, you know. And then, deva ear, right? You're hearing sounds, but the sounds are, you know, a thousand miles away. No sound waves. So what it is, you're tapping into this subtler mode of awareness, and the key to that is shamatha. Always come back to shamatha. That's why it's kind of important. So, whatever thoughts arise repeatedly, let them appear and be released. Each one dissolves in a state of natural liberation, which is to say simply, but you know this by now, each one dissolves, it simply releases itself. In other words, it doesn't need, it's not like something hovering there and it needs something to whack it and knock it out or whack it and crush it. It needs nothing from outside itself to disappear because it's rounder. It releases itself. It doesn't, need, doesn't require an antidote. Right? It'll do it all by itself. Just watch. So each one dissolves in a state of natural liberation, evenly release each one in the state of non-grasping. And that's how they do release. If we grasp, the grasping perpetuates them. Right? Don't grasp. You don't, if you don't grasp, you don't need to apply an antidote. Because the antidote is applying more grasping. Release the grasping altogether. They should release themselves. And then mission accomplished. Moreover, the natural character of thought, this is interesting, the natural character of thought is to dwell primordially in natural liberation. It's a natural character when it's not bound up in grasping, when it's just arising as a free agent, just a free event, an event arising in the space of the mind. It dwells primordially in natural liberation. That's just its nature. They release themselves. The mind, I mean, the implications of this are utterly fantastic. It said, you know, Pardon me, it sounds silly, but give peace a chance. You know, just the serenity of releasing your mind and then allowing it to heal itself. It's brilliant. It's breathtaking. When a former thought arises as hatred, so some very resentful, hatred, malevolent thought, and then a later one arises as compassion, we all know how that happens, right? The earlier hatred did not go anywhere. So one's 
one replace the other. First, you're having really angry, hateful thoughts. This is clear. Sorry if I'm, I'm saying what doesn't need to be said. But then after a while, the hatred is gone. And then compassion is rising. Well, where did the hatred go? It's not there anymore. Where did it go? Did it go into the back drawer? Did it go, did it go someplace? And what he's saying, it didn't go anywhere at all. He's going to elaborate on that. It is really, it, that is, when a former thought arises hatred and a later one arises compassion, the earlier hatred did not go anywhere. It is released in natural liberation. It just goes poof. It just releases without being liberated by anyone. Freed, antidoted, remedied by anyone. You don't need to do anything to it. Just don't grasp onto it. Hatred has never remained immutably. Moreover, the birth of... This is so... Again, this whole... Everything here, I just have to say it, is how this looks from the perspective of Rigpa. It's crucial. This is what it looks like. This is, you're not imagining this. This is how things appear to you from the perspective of Rigpa. The birth of hatred is self-arisen. That is self-arisen, self-emergent. Just, it's just spontaneous. There it is. From the perspective of Rigpa. It's self-arisen and is a natural appearance of the creative power of primordial consciousness. That's what it looks like from your perspective. That hatred one of the most malevolent toxins in the human mind is a natural expression of, prim of primordial consciousness. From that perspective. Because from your perspective, it's not toxic. From your perspective, hatred is nothing other than the primordial consciousness, mirror-like, mirror-like primordial consciousness, one of the five facets of primordial consciousness. It's divine. It's transcendent. From your perspective. Right? And from your perspective, from a conventional mind perspective, ordinary mind perspective. Buddhist psychology is brilliant here. And I know there's a lot of research, a lot of very good research from modern science. Uh, Paul Ekman has done a lot of it. And he has many colleagues as well. Affective psychology. Anger is an emotion. Anger is an emotion. So they look for triggers. They look for biological mechanisms. What part of the brains are active? This is good science. Are there parts of the brain that are specially correlated to anger and hatred? Yeah, there are. That's good to know, right? And then there are triggers, which are not brain mechanisms. It's seeing a person maybe of another color or another religion or it could be anything. Triggers. People being rude to you. People being pushy. The train not coming on time. You know, people have triggers. And so this is really good psychology. There's a lot of modern scientific psychology. It's very good. How does anger rise? Anger management. All that kind of stuff. It's good. And Buddhism has been doing that for 2,500 years. What are the, depend what are the causes and conditions independence upon which anger arises? Jitta-satipatthana, close application of mindfulness to the mind. You're looking at how do mental affections arise? What are the triggers? What's the primary cause? What are the cooperative conditions? What are the factors of origination? Straight satipatthana sutra. What are the factors of origination? What are the factors of dissolution? Because again, nobody gets angry forever. You know? That's really good. It's brilliant. And you can see a lot of very meaningful interface there between this traditional, very insightful, radically empirical Buddhist understanding of how mental afflictions arise and through pratita samuppada. And that's what it looks like when you're viewing it from the mind, from the perspective of mind. Or if you're viewing it from the perspective of a psychologist. This is all good. But it's not the only perspective. There's also the perspective of looking at the same phenomenon, hatred, looking at it from the perspective of rikpa. 
And then it's not, from that perspective, it's not pratita sambhapada. It's not dependent origination. It's not arising independence upon causing conditions. It just, it just happens. But it just happens as an expression of primordial consciousness, which means there's nothing to antidote because it's not toxic. It's not a mental affliction. It looks like it from that perspective, and this perspective, it's pure gold. Just a creative display of Buddha nature. There's a lot more to be said, but not right now. So enjoy your evening. See you tomorrow morning.